Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. This week, just Evan Ratliff on the line with me. Hello, Evan. How are you? Hey, Aaron. It's great to be with you here in this two-way environment, just the two of us. Finally, we can uh, we can say all the things uh, to each other that we can't say in front of Max. I can't think of what any of those <laughs> things are, but Max is on vacation, well-deserved vacation. Uh, on the program this week, um, I talked to Azam Ahmed. He was a New York Times reporter in Afghanistan. I believe he was the Kabul bureau chief. Uh, he then went to Mexico, where he um, was a bureau chief based out of Mexico City. He reported all over Mexico, as well as the Central America and the Caribbean. I think probably the most well-known reporting uh, from that period was a series of articles he did on the Pegasus spyware, which was used to spy on students and politicians and just about everyone uh, and journalists. But I talked to him about his new book, Fear is Just a Word, A Missing Daughter, A Violent Cartel, and A Mother's Quest for Vengeance. Evan, do you remember a story that came out in 202020 that was about a woman whose daughter was kidnapped by a cartel who sought very personal revenge against the people who did it. I do remember this story. You know me. I'm a times head. I thought I could rely on you for that memory. Um, he has a book out that I think it would be unfair to just call it an expansion of the story. It's really in the expansion of everything the story is about. So the book is a history of smuggling routes through this region, um, not just going back to like 2007, but going back to the 1930s. It's a history of the cartels in that area and the rift uh, that led uh, to the Gulf cartel being in conflict with the Zetas cartel, which um, were the people who kidnapped this woman's daughter. And at a very deep level, it really gets into... Uh, how cartels, the military, the police, and ordinary people interact in this one town uh, near the border. It's an incredible piece. Uh, I learned a lot. It's also very brutal and cinematic and contains a lot of new information and reporting that was not in his original article and was not known to the public before he did this book. Also, lots of like fascinating reporting stuff, lots of safety issues, sources. I mean, really just like highest degree of difficulty on uh, every level. I am uh, very interested to 
read this book and to hear this episode. We are brought to you in partnership with Vox. They help us make the show. Max helps us make the show. But even when Max isn't helping us make the show, or some could say making the show, uh, Vox is always here every week to serve as our support. So thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Aaron with Azam Ahmed. Welcome to the program, Azam Ahmed. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to talk about your new book, Fear is Just a Word, but I'm going to like hold that in the background for a second because I want to understand the series of life events that led you to be able to write a book like this. So where are you from and how did you get into writing and journalism? Uh, my family's Pakistani. I was born in Southern Virginia, right on the border with North Carolina. Uh, how did I get into this? I guess I started shortly after university. I did short fiction. And then it wasn't until after I graduated college where I was like, huh, there's a profession that actually incorporates a lot of my native interests, the writing, the travel, the thinking about these issues. And then I think maybe more importantly, there was like a moral compass or there could be a moral compass to the work and a way to sort of represent voices that might otherwise be less represented. So I think those kind of came together in some ways. When you started to think about that kind of writing, like what did you sort of gravitate towards as like a beginner uh, in terms of what you thought you could take on? Oh, I mean, God, when I when I started, it was like I was taking on whatever whatever anybody would give <laughs> me to take on. I mean, nothing nothing impressive. Uh, I I sort of traveled and thought about things, and then went back and thought, well, what do I want to do? And I got a job as an intern at the Wall Street Journal in Europe for their editorial page. Now they have a a pretty conservative editorial page. And at the time, that wasn't really my politics. But the editor there was a really thoughtful and decent guy. And when I kind of was honest with him, he was like, well, why would you want to work here then if you're not, you know, if you don't agree with the war in Iraq and you're not, you know, super pro free trade and everything. Uh, and I said, well, because as a college kid, you kind of just hear lefty rhetoric that isn't very founded in fact. It's more emotional truth than necessarily tethered to to the facts of the day. And I'm, I'm open to hearing the other side. I'm actually, I'd like to know what it is and understand it at a deep level so I can really form my opinions on reflection. Maybe that was bullshit, but he bought it and I got an <laughs> internship and uh, I wrote a couple of pieces for them and it was never anything I disagreed with, but I just, I thought, wow, I can write and get paid to write about things happening. It was kind of a long road back to being able to write about things that I cared about as much, but, uh, but I did that, came back to the States and started working at the Dow Jones Newswires, where I was covering global currencies, which, you know, at the time, it was just a, it was a way to start thinking about journalism. Like, how do you take facts and assemble them? How do you understand the way things happen in the world and, and fold them into a way that is comprehensible for people who maybe aren't experts? And I did that for a short period. And then I got an internship at the Chicago Tribune, one of their residency programs. And that kind of that kind of started me on doing, I guess, more narrative journalism, journalism that was, I guess, more investigative. What is like working on a newswire like? Like, where does your the work you do on a newswire end up? And what are the sort of like editorial parameters of something like that? Um, I mean, I yeah, like I I can't speak to some of the bigger ones like AP or Reuters, but for me at Dow Jones, you know, it's it's a it was a service wire. You're giving that to people who are paying to subscribe 
for information that is useful for them in their daily life. Maybe a currency trader wants to see what the latest thinking is on a rise in the dollar or a drop in the yen. And so you're writing short stories, and they're usually in quick bursts. They're predicated on market movements. And sometimes you'll step back and say, hey, why is this happening more broadly? What's happening with interest rates in this country that's making currencies go up or down in another place? But for the most part, it's a, I would say it's more utilitarian, less of the literary kind of aspirations that newspapers or magazines might have. But also like extremely useful in terms of essentializing what it is you need to convey. When you're being sort of dropped into new terrain, be it like, you know, FX currency markets, urban Chicago, Afghanistan, Mexico, and you're starting with a limited amount of built up knowledge about these topics and places because you haven't spent a life covering them. How do you sort of immerse yourself in a new culture? Like, how do you even know who to call about a currency issue or about like something happening in Chicago government? What's your sort of roadmap when you're when you're new somewhere? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said a lot of it wasn't gracious colleagues, especially on the currency side. I mean, I I'd never even written a story before, and suddenly I'm like, what's the dollar yen? I thought that was that was like one currency. Uh, I think maybe it requires like being, I mean, this is going to sound like a being humble, but I think it requires being dumb enough or obtuse enough not to be intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the humility of just like asking people for help. I, I, so currencies was hard. Chicago was a bit easier. You know, I, I was there for four years. I started covering just the city, you know, press conferences, local news, the unfortunate violence that kind of plagues its various neighborhoods. And then as you kind of start to see how things work, you build sources, you meet people in different institutions, you start covering, I covered public schools, for instance, you meet people in the administration, you start figuring out how to make sources, how to get people to talk to you. You kind of, yeah, it sort of feeds on itself in some ways. One source, you meet another, and you realize that it isn't actually rocket science. There's no dark arts to it. You start meeting people, you start talking to them, and there's different kinds of people. There's access journalists who are amazing at getting everyone to talk to them. And I was never one of those journalists. I think I was the kind of person that either a source was really going to like me, and then I was probably going to be able to get them to help me with what I needed, or they were going to think I was obnoxious, so they wouldn't like me, and it was going to be like, you know, they wouldn't answer my calls. So yeah, I, I Chicago was a little bit easier. And then when I went to the Times and started covering finance, it was really, really hard for me. I mean, none of my friends or family had gone onto Wall Street. I didn't have natural connections. And honestly, it was just not a world that interested me at all. Not because it wasn't important, just because it was far from my, from where my intellectual curiosity roamed. And so I basically just for the first six months, just met and talked to anybody that would meet and talk with me just asked them everything. And it's, I mean, there's that saying, like, you know, you, you feel like you might have grasped something when you pass yourself on the way to the interview. And after a while, I felt like, okay, I get the way this world kind of functions. And in the process, I've met, you know, 150 people. And all of those people want to quote, so you can get them to tell you stuff. Well, there's a similarity, or I'm making up a similarity, uh, between Wall Street and some of what you wrote about in this book about Mexico and that you have these sort of different forces in the sense of 
trading firms and regulators, and they all have their sort of own agendas. And additionally, they all are using the press as a means to the end of getting their message out, which, you know, I, I see certain similarities in the book to you've got the military, you've got the police, you've got cartels, and then like journalists are kind of like in the middle of all of these Venn diagrams. When you were just going in saying, hey, I don't know anything about finance. Could you have coffee with me? I guess I'm I'm curious, like how you started to like develop an ear for like, why is this person telling me this? What are the like the sources of power and money that are sort of implied in their worldview and what they're telling you? I, I think at first they kind of took pity on me, you know, like <laughs> who's this poor kid that doesn't know anything and is like about to get swallowed whole. Um, and so also I wasn't very useful to manipulate. <laughs> that right. makes sense. It's not like they, they were going to land some big counter scoop with me. But I found that the more you interview people, the more you speak to them, you sort of start to see the space between the lies. You can kind of see where their fact patterns match up, what they're saying makes sense. If I hear the same thing from four different people on various sides of an issue, I know that stuff might be true and I can kind of differentiate, okay, where are they going a little too far? Where are they adding in their own interest to this particular you know, topic or issue? And so I think, I think just as an exercise, talking to that many people is useful to download all the information you can because when you're starting from scratch the the ability to manipulate isn't so easy you know you kind of need to have a baseline but once you get that baseline and you've talked to that many people you can kind of you get a sense of the playing field where people are what their interests are and again the way that they differentiate what they say from others is kind of the most telling and so you're writing about finance, which is not at all what you want to write about. Did you have like a ticking clock of like, I can do this for so long and then I need to like get somewhere from here? Or was there, were you entertaining the fact that, hey, maybe I'll just be like a Wall Street reporter for the rest of my life? No, no, I don't. And look, there's some of the best reporters in the world are Wall Street reporters. It just, I knew it wasn't for me. You know, I knew my passions, my interests, my background. I knew I couldn't stay doing it for a long time, but I guess it started off, especially when you don't know about a topic, you're so desperate to be rid of it. You know, I went from doing investigative work in Chicago where I'd actually gotten quite good at understanding things. And I had sources and they were leaking me huge documents and scoops. And I was, you know, I was feeling great. And then suddenly I'm dropped in like a new world where I know nothing and know nobody and I'm back to being an idiot. And so there's a part of like, just not wanting to feel that way, wanting to go back to what you're familiar with and what you know how to do. And the other part is like, I actually don't care inherently that much about finance. And it sort of started that way. And then sort of crawled my way up the curve. I started to do more investigative work on Wall Street, looking into more, you know, financial collapses, insider trading scandals. And I think I realized two things. One is that there was a service to that. You know, there was something that could be could be used or useful in helping people. But then more importantly, I was just learning how to navigate incredibly fraught and difficult circumstances. Not fraught because there was any physical danger, but it's an incredibly powerful block of people who run Wall Street and who operate on Wall Street, the kind of people, you know, the major news and media outlets write about. And if you mess something up, you make a mistake or you do something that appears to be in bad faith, you'll get dinged for it. That doesn't happen as much or you're in some far remote region of Afghanistan, you know, nobody's there to check on you. But there are an army of people much more well-paid than you 
who are there to suss out any of your mistakes. And so you learn to be careful, but you also learn, I think one of my friends, Suzanne Craig, once said, you know, she was describing another reporter's work and saying, you know, she really knew how to create theater, how to make it, you know, you take these seemingly boring, innocuous moments behind trading screens and turn it into like a vibrant event. You know, it's easy to do that in a war zone because the stakes are so literal, they're right there. But to do that on Wall Street with a trade or a particular, you know, bungle by a bond desk, it's hard. And you have to think a lot harder and frame it in the right way. And in terms of training, I found that to be probably the most useful place I ever worked. Yeah, I had the last interview I did for the show, that live show I was talking about was with a reporter who reports on the cryptocurrency industry. And we were sort of discussing how uncinematic like the future is like all these things like there's millions of dollars it's like bank robberies but it's like if you're visualizing it it's all people sitting in front of a computer you know (laughs) it's um it's not a great scene to set and in your later work um you know in a mostly tragic way but like you know the scenes in this book are like vibrant you know they evoke these places in mexico so much of the world that is going to be invoked in the future, at least in the like technology and finance industry, is just like people in front of a bunch of like monitors being like, oh, my God, it happened. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you started in finance and then eventually um, made your way to Afghanistan. H- how long was it from like when you started at the Times to when you ended up in Afghanistan? Uh, two years. Two years. OK, so pretty fast um, ramp up. What were the circumstances that led you to go to Afghanistan? I'd always wanted to do war correspondence. It kind of felt like a, it felt like one of those subjects that was just undeniably important. You know, the kind of thing that you should be doing. If you want to be a journalist, you should be out there. You know, some of that was like the naivety of being a kid and thinking about, you know, I guess the idea of it. But some of it was, you know, it was genuine. It was a part of the world I was interested in. I'm a Muslim. My family's from Pakistan. But more than that, it was this atrocious act that humanity was committing against itself. And I felt the ability to go in and chronicle that and bring grace to it, bring, you know, investigative information to it to to reveal and unveil. It felt like it brought together a lot of different parts of myself that, you know, I wanted to bring to bear in my work. So you're sitting there in New York saying, well, like, this is what I've always wanted to do, Pakistani. And then you show up. What was the reality like as compared to what you had been thinking it would be like? Yeah, so I I guess from a distance, you think of a war zone as a place where bombs are always exploding and snipers are sitting on rooftops. And to some degree, in some war zones, it is. But even countries in war, not all places are like that. Like, if you're in Raqqa, it's one thing. But if you're in Damascus, it's a totally different thing. If you're in Kabul, it's one thing. If you're in Kandahar, it's something else. You know, if you're out with U.S. troops, it's one thing. If you're out with the Afghan troops, it's another. I kind of just had this, I don't know. I talked to a lot of people about it before I went, obviously. But I didn't realize it was going to be so dichotomous. Either you were going to kind of be in this suspended reality of Kabul in a bureau that's relatively comfortable with colleagues who are all very smart and capable and talking to people who know a lot about what's going on, but in some ways in a bubble. And then you move beyond that bubble and you step into spaces that are less comfortable and you suddenly realize like, oh, wow, this, this is where it actually gets, gets complicated. This is where it gets more dangerous. This is where, this is where actually what we want to know is, 
like little dispatches from that world come into this bubble. And if you're not careful and you stay in that bubble too long, you know, you wind up with old recycled information. So I think maybe it was the, it was the tempo and the pace of war and the spatial dynamics of it, where you needed to go to find out what you needed to find out, you know, who you needed to talk to when you realized that like a lot of the people who were ostensibly sources and telling you information were kind of lying to you or, you know, feeding you, even as in on Wall Street, feeding you their own lines to promote their vision of what was happening in the war. How did you think about each article you did and its relationship to sort of telling the overall story of the Afghanistan war to an American audience that was pretty ignorant of it? You know, when you're when you're writing one story about like a, I don't know, FX currency change, you're just like, this happened. It's relevant information to you. No one is like, I'm only going to rely on this for my understanding of, you know, this industry I am. Whereas an American reader and I and I am that reader, you know, it's like yeah, I read the Times coverage. I don't know. I like when I saw an article about Afghanistan, maybe I'd read it. And then I sort of constructed my understanding of what the Afghanistan war was from that constellation of 700, 900 word articles that would pop across. And also, you know, as one further wrinkle to that question, knowing that people weren't going to read all of your articles from Afghanistan, like in sequential order, like a book, you know, they're sort of dipping in and out of the story. And I mean, that's a, it's a great question. I think it's kind of like down to newspaper dynamics. And it also like kind of speaks to one's evolution as a reporter. When I got to Afghanistan, I was covering news and sort of shorter term enterprise. So I go out, I mean, my first day there, I covered a suicide bombing down the street, you know, and you do little things when you're working in small format, you know, breaking news where you're like, you try and humanize the people at the gate, or you talk about like how difficult it is to be an Afghan working at one of the gates of the major embassies, because you're, you're literally there to absorb attacks. And then as time evolves, you kind of find moments where you can, you know, look for ways to write about people that I mean, because I was really conscious, especially at the time when I got there, so much of what was happening in that war had been so, for 12 years, people had been reading it. And by that point, it was hard to get anyone to reimagine this war. You know, the stakes had been set, kind of felt like this interminable thing. And there was a lull, you know, even the, you know, the surge of 2008 and 2009 had ended with kind of a whimper and nobody knew or cared really what was happening. People forgot you know, the U.S. was even in Afghanistan at that point. So I tried to find stories that were really just about people. Like I did a story about the man who buried suicide bombers in Kabul, you know, and it was this, he was this beautiful person who, he did it out of love for God and a commitment to humanity. You know, he wasn't looking at the politics of it or the violence of it even. Or the, you know, a story about these girls, this pandemic of suicides in the north of the country, in a slightly more moderate area where girls were attempting suicide to frighten their parents enough to give them some more freedoms and that it was creating this massive kind of problem at at home and in the hospitals where they were being inundated with young girls committing suicide or attempting to commit suicide. Things like that where it could be a story about anybody anywhere, but it happens to be in the midst of a war zone, kind of re-anchors the reader to to the emotional truth of those kind of oftentimes just places you're very inured to. I noticed in um, a character in your book is a, a mortician or a, a funeral home, Chalo, 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 Chalo. Yeah. Chalo. And I was like, 
that's a really good character to choose because that's a person who's like close to all of these different pieces of violence and has this sort of semi-official reason to be there and to have a firsthand account of these interactions that really the only other people who would have seen would have been like the police who aren't going to give you that. Do you look for people like that? People who are kind of like uh, weird, essential, like links in the chain that can give you access to places and scenes? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. For an article and then even more so for a book, you're just casting, right? You're casting for characters. And it sounds like a somewhat crude term, but all of those interviews are useful. You're learning more, you know, you're growing more aware or intelligent about whatever it is you're covering. And then you find someone. And sometimes it's just like, they're just so good at telling stories. You find a way to get them into the piece. Or sometimes they are in a specific place, like this unique prism through which to view everything you need to see. Or sometimes there's just like the opposite perspective of the main character that you have to use. But yeah, I mean, characters, especially for a book, I mean, the thing that I enjoyed in writing the book was that like, I could let kind of let my fingers go and like really get into and develop characters and kind of bring the reader enough into their world. And then for me, it was also very important that all of the characters that I use sort of dovetailed in one way or another, whether it's Chalo and his friendship with Miriam, whether it's Maria Inez and her loss and then her eventual friendship with Miriam, or even that girl, Margarita Renteria, you know, who was one of the individuals involved in killing Miriam's daughter. Her family winds up being back in Miriam's orbit. And so in, in kind of pulling it together, you know, it's more of a, a tapestry, I guess, you know, where you, you start a thread and you don't know where it's going to end, but you know that it's going to build the broader picture out. And then within that framework, you're, yeah, you're picking and choosing people who not only have compelling stories or vistas, but can, can convey them. So the, the article that the book, I guess, expanded upon, is that the right way to describe it? Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. The, the basis built upon, for it? Like yeah, the built upon. So the article came out, I believe, in 2020. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, that expanding tapestry, was that work that you did subsequently when you realized, like, oh, I'm going to write a book about this. I need a bigger world to exist than fits inside a feature? Yeah, I mean... I don't know if I succeeded, but what I wanted to do was make a book that was fundamentally different from the article, not in terms of the contours of the story, but what I tried to do with the book was to build a world, not kind of drop you into one. And then beyond that, give it more heft than just here's a narrative that's deeply moving about a universal theme, like a mother's love for her child. I also tried to incorporate, and I think I got lucky in some ways because the history of the cartel that kidnaps and then kills this girl is kind of... It, it coexists alongside the development of the Mexican state. And so using it as almost a proxy for how Mexico came to be so broken, I could go back to the archives from the 1930s and 40s and track and trace the history of this cartel, kind of dovetail those two storylines, this one propulsive narrative story of Miriam, and then this other contextual story of this particular cartel and what its growth and metastasis in some ways says about the Mexican state and how Mexico became a byword for violence. So going back and forth in that way, it was kind of like, I didn't want to just, I mean, I think I I was saying this to my publisher. I was like, I don't want just to just be a glorified article. I mean, I was really scared of that. I didn't want to do a book that just felt like, oh yeah, this is like the article plus a hundred pages. I really wanted to do something that kind of answered the fundamental question, like how did Mexico get to be this way? 
but use a story that was compelling enough to bring readers into it. I mean, I think the book very much succeeds on that basis. There's, I would say, several dimensions that are, that almost like if you're just reading a story like this as the act of violence and the act of revenge, you're sort of reading a very one-dimensional understanding of it. Like, I remember when I read the original story, I think, you know, as an American who doesn't really know anything about this stuff, you can have the belief oh, this is just some small town in Mexico. This is going on in all of them. And then you read the book and you're like, no, this is actually a very hyper-specific town with a hyper-specific history that led to these events. Some other town in some other state, completely different scenario, different history, different dynamics. There's a lot of layers to what is, you know, could be seen as sort of a typical kidnapping story that are, are hyper-specific and seem like they're important to understanding like what really happened. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was definitely the, the hope, right? I mean, it's super gratifying to hear you say that. I think the idea was like, I just covered so many stories, so many atrocities and things that, you know, beggar belief. And I just never really grasped like, how, how does this happen? Like, how does a mother whose daughter is kidnapped and killed then get killed herself for seeking justice. How does something like that happen? And we all use the words impunity and corruption. And, you know, it, it just becomes this sort of thing that explains itself. Only it doesn't. It doesn't explain itself. Because if you allow that to explain itself, there's no way to untangle it. So I wanted to get as intimate and close to it as I could. But I also wanted it to be a readable book. I didn't want to produce a white paper. You know, I wanted it to be a narrative. I wanted it to be something where you're like identifying with a character because they're flawed but powerful and intriguing. And Miriam's story allowed me to get into, for instance, to like the failure of forensics in Mexico. I mean, she has to like, she has to find the pieces of her daughter in two different graves. I mean, that took me months to figure out. I mean, there was a, there was a case file that I got that took me a very long time to get. It was a classified case file that Miriam herself had helped prosecutors put together where a lot of the information was drawn from, but it was 20,000 pages in Spanish and like written in this high style Baroque Spanish that is impenetrable. And, you know, it was excruciating going through that. But then I realized within it, you would find all of these, you know, we, you can read any number of great stories out of Mexico talking about people looking for their missing loved ones and how, you know, forensics does not allow them to do proper DNA testing of these mass graves that pop up monthly. And yet with her story, you can see it and you can feel it. And it lands to me, at least it landed in a way that doing that kind of detailed narrative, what I hoped was that it wouldn't allow for the othering that happens with these sorts of stories, whether it's the glorification of the narcos because they're fun and kooky with crazy names and, you know, fast tempers or the other ring of like, well, wow, messed up in Mexico. That's crazy to ground it in real events and moments through the eyes of real people that you can establish. That was a, that was a more, I guess, journalistic goal. It wasn't necessarily the writing goal. The writing goal was more of like a, I don't know, it was meant to be something that kind of swept you in and kind of guided you along and, and felt like it was a flow to the narrative, even as it transposed two stories. But for sure, I think her story was meant to be larded with all of these facets that most of the time I would just mention in passing as context.
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. There's a Rashomon element to the narrative where there are multiple people who were present during the kidnapping and murder of her daughter. And we hear their stories deep into the book. After hearing some of the sort of outline of the story early on, we learn more and more about what really happened. And it's helpful that Miriam was performing a kind of quasi-vigilante journalism herself. but. The book is, I mean, this is a compliment, like very cinematic and like watching a movie, including using devices you might see in a movie, like not fully understanding what's happening early on and having twists later. How did you put that together? How did you and how did you think about like what a reader knows at different points in the story and what it'll lead them to believe? You know, there's a temptation, I think with journalists who are doing investigative work to kind of mirror their own process in the text. Yes. Which is, hey, I thought it was this, and then I looked some more, and then I found out this, and then boom, it was this. It, it's very, like, it's very alluring. It's also its own kind of structure and its own sequence. And I felt that way for a long time because I didn't find out probably 90% of what was in the book until after I'd published that article. And after I'd, I mean, I had a totally different book in mind and proposal that I was working on. And then this story came out and, you know, talked it over with my agent. We decided, okay, let's go with this book. And so I had a lot more to do because I didn't want to do a glorified article. And so I, I didn't have any of the testimony about Karen's death. I didn't have any of those archives. I didn't have, you know, any of the witness statements or the lists of people who were involved or know who else was at that house when she was kidnapped. And so slowly I started to like dig my way through this 20,000 page case file and would discover information and new leads. And I'd be like, oh my God. And then I'd like cross-reference that with other people. And at first it felt very natural to be like, well, the biggest mystery to me was like, who was this guy? And then when I found out who he was, that's, and I'm like, no, but that's not really the story. So I think it took like I mean, and, and I got to give a lot of credit to my editor, who's brilliant, Kate Medina. 
When I finally got through all the material and felt like I had a grasp on the story, I wrote kind of just like a chronology, like a chronological timeline of everything that had happened and done, did this like exhaustive Google Doc where every single document that was relevant, I had like hyperlinked and given the date for it just so I could visualize, you know, and it was like 70 or 80 pages, something crazy. And then I sent her kind of a much more condensed version of like, here's the outline of the story. And that was where it started because that wasn't going to be interesting. It wasn't going to be interesting to just go point by point. Once I'd gotten away from the idea that my kind of imposing my experience on the book wasn't going to work and I didn't want to do that, then it was a matter of looking at the actual timeline and finding moments and points that felt like inflection points and kind of weaving those in and out. And yeah, I mean, there was a there was a lot of cutting, but I think it was in the effort to kind of do what you're saying, which is present characters, present perspectives, because you don't actually have any immutable truth, really. I mean, the police never really figure it out. You have testimony from, you know, the criminals behind it. You have testimony from people who are compromised or people who are deeply traumatized and might not remember it. So that sort of Rashomon approach you describe. It was in part a device because it was something I could lean into, but it was also in some ways an inevitability. I could take on the voice of God and write about this is what happened. But in reality, it was it's the amalgam of all of these perspectives that kind of lead the reader to believe they know what happened. There's a power to that sort of narrative that unfolds over a longer period of time where it allows for, for me at least as a reader, this additional beat maybe two thirds of the way through the book where she's already like caught most of the people who are involved and she's like tracking down like people's girlfriends and stuff like that. And you're kind of like, this person is the hero of this book, but they're a flawed hero that there there's a limit to the vigilanteism stuff. Like this isn't a Hollywood movie about someone who gets revenge. It's like kind of, messier and, and more obsessive. And there's also elements of that in the story of the daughter who is murdered, Karen, where you start, I started off and you read the original article. You're like, wow, this person just got taken and murdered. And then, you know, as you understand more of the events of that night, I don't think that she's in any way to be blamed for her murder, but like she was kind of hanging out at this like house, a bunch where a bunch of cartel dudes who had sort of a weird history of kidnapping each other. It seems like that, that story, that story of the guy who had already been kidnapped, but was like going and taking his meals back at his house. That's, that's the best single detail of the whole book. Oh my God. I'm so glad you said that. I had to fight to keep that in. I was like, somebody's going to love this. Cause it's so weird. It's, it's so weird. So, it can't, it's gotta be true because it's so specifically weird. Well, and it speaks to what you kind of come to understand, which is that there was like, weird groups of kidnappers who were kind of like preying on like people one and two degrees away from each other. And I don't think it would be right to say, Oh, all those people were involved in the cartel. That's obviously not true, but it's also sort of wrong to think, Oh, these are just random people being snatched off the street entirely. There are people who are part of the social world. What do those sort of like moments of grayness like how, how did you deal with those like the less flattering parts of miriam or you know the fact that you understood more about the kidnapping it was a little bit murkier and like less clear-cut as a narrative than maybe where you started i mean for me it was 
at first you're like, oh, well, that complicates the panorama. And then, you know, every great novel I've ever read, every great story I've ever read, everybody's complicated. Anytime you read something where there's like some unabashed hero, some white knight riding in, you know it's kind of bullshit. And you know it's not really like that. I mean, we might like our heroes clean, but that's not how they come. And I thought it just added granularity and depth to it. I mean, I walked away without any doubt that Karen wasn't involved in this cartel in any way. And I, and I tried to actually lean into it in another way, which is to explain, explain their mental state. You know, Karen's dealing with social life around her collapsing, her parents' marriage collapsing, this sort of like depth of sadness that she's feeling. And those are the kinds of things that, you know, so many kids in the United States and all over the world do, right? They act out, they rebel, they make stupid decisions. And most of the time, it, worst case, it results in like a driving under the influence charge. In this case, it was the stakes were higher, but they're still just kids. You know, she's still just a 20-year-old who's like pining for a happy life and some sense of belonging somewhere. And I think people understandably look all over for that, including in the wrong places. And they do it for a little while and then they realize, oh, that's not for me. But she got caught up before that, oh, it's not for me moment could happen. Similarly, Miriam, you can't be the kind of person who does what she did and not have a component of complexity to you. The kind of wreckage left behind by a disappearance, it usually just destroys people. It completely melts them or they become obsessive and they search for things. But that extra thing that makes you actually seek vengeance, makes you actually seek people pay. I mean, that's a step that very few people take. And in doing that, I think the by default, the personality type has to be one that's a, you know, complicated. In a nation not that concerned with the laws and the rules, also probably not that concerned with the laws and the rules. So you come to understand this crime from like a bunch of different angles. How different people sort of view it. Like the Marines, they view it like, give us the coordinates and we're going to go and shoot everyone in the head and we're not going to apologize for it. The police are like, oh, another report, like chill out, you know, you're causing problems. Um, the people in this town are terrified and talk about doing things like forming a suicide squad, but like really it ends up being kind of a suicide squad of one. There, there turns out to be like one person who really follows through on that. And it's Miriam. The perspective we don't really get in the story, and I wonder if this was a conscious choice, was like, we don't hear a lot from people who join the cartel locally. Like, there isn't a perspective character that is in the cartel. Was that because you could not get that kind of a source? Did you consciously choose to not include that kind of a perspective? Oh, I, I tried and tried. I tried to include details that were obtained through like lots of research into their statements and their family statements about who they were. Like one of them was a boxer. One of them had been injured and had been kind of taken off the cartel payroll afterwards to kind of show just how dispensable these individuals are. But it's, it, two things happened. One, with the amount of information I had, it kind of felt like that was the world that was trying to be penetrated. And narratively, it made sense to me to surround it and talk about the implications it had for everyone else and then what people found out about it while also using knowledge and information I'd obtained from it to kind of 
to kind of make it a little bit more fully represented. And then the other was, I mean, I tried for two years to get one of these individuals to talk to me. I mean, at, at one point in the book, I quote at length from one of the people's testimonies, mm -hmm. what they saw and what they said happened. But, you know, I went to visit that individual and three or four other individuals at two different prisons. And every time, you know, I was kind of turned away and told no. I mean, one of the times it was like a crisis. Like we showed up at a prison. I tried to talk to two individuals who were involved and arrested as a result of Miriam. And this particular prison is controlled by the Zeta's rival cartel. So the young man, Cristiano, who was in this prison, it's pretty sad. He's basically being held captive within the prison. Like his hair was uncut, his nails were uncut. He's told when he can bathe, when he can shower, when he can groom himself because he's a quote unquote Zeta in a Gulf cartel prison. And when, you know, I went with one of his former lawyers who was going to try and help me get the interview after the first few attempts had failed. And by the time he came out and started talking to him, he had a shadow from the Gulf cartel who was with him and wouldn't let him answer any questions. And then ultimately we got word from the warden that the Gulf cartel had sort of sounded the alarm that we were there trying to talk to him and we had to leave the prison and actually got followed all the way home. So it, was, it just wasn't feasible to get them to open up and divulge what was happening. But I would have, I would have liked to know more about them and to... I mean, the word humanize is used way too much. I think what I kind of wanted to convey in the book, though, is just like there is this like predatory violence that, as you said, is one or two degrees of separation. It's community preying on the community. And these are kids. These aren't like masterminds walking around with like gold-plated AK-47s and pet tigers. Like These are kids living in like decrepit hotels and like driving around, you know, shitty cars with holes in the engine. It's subsistence criminality. And they're doing awful things there's like a almost a child soldier like quality to it but the fact of the matter is that creates and sows this this misery that you know i mean i think the in some ways the spoken and unspoken detail of this, the book is like where does that come from it comes from this insatiable appetite for drugs in the united states i think what i wanted to leave was a record of what it really looks like no more of the fairy tales and the like things that we can look at and kind of be like oh wow narco culture like, this is actually what it looks like. It's a bunch of kids preying on each other and on a town. And, like, the wreckage it leaves behind is a result of failed policies and, you know, problematic bilateral relationships. I didn't want to lay that on thick because I think that's boring. I think it's not storytelling. But the, the subtext to the entire book is why. And you get to understand why it's like that in Mexico. But the engine behind it all is, is American policy and American drug appetites. I think you do a good job in the book, and this is echoed in other stories I've seen from around the world about, I guess, the world kind of falling apart, but depicting how what starts as a drug smuggling business, as it sort of gets copied and replicated across generations has less and less of its like original purpose and becomes more of just like a culture that poor young people fall into that like being in the Zetas in 2020 is pretty different than if you were in it in the early years. I mean, to go from like a basically a paramilitary organization to like what's depicted in the book, they seem like they have almost no relationship to each other, but clearly they do have a relationship to each other. That's sort of what the story is about. Um, 
you're doing this stuff. You're poking into their business. You're going to the prison. They obviously know who you are. You're, you're going to the Zeta and the Gulf prison. So you're announcing yourself to all of the possible cartels that could be interested. How do you regard your own personal safety and what are the stakes for like an American journalist poking their head in these places? I mean, I can, I can speak for myself. I mean, I think I walk around with a lot of privilege. I'm an American citizen. I work for the New York Times. I think the difference between ISIS or the Taliban and the cartels is that they're business people. And it is bad business killing an American and bad business to kill an American journalist. That doesn't mean it wouldn't happen or it couldn't happen. But it, it makes the stakes higher for them. Whereas, you know, Mexican colleagues don't have that luxury. You know, they, they face a lot more direct risk, as is obvious from all the stories that come out about how many are being killed every year. So part of it is that, and part of it is, you know, I think you just make the decision, like, I want to find out this information, and I've done this enough in enough places that I feel like I can measure the risk and the potential benefit to the story. And I don't really see the point of doing these, kind of, these kinds of stories or books if you can't, if you can't manage to get intimate and close. I think in some ways, the story helped in that respect because it was out there, what I was doing. It's a few years in the past, so their current interests are less compromised. And then, yeah, I just I think for them, there's a different calculation to pressuring or threatening an American journalist versus a local journalist, for instance. You have written about the Pegasus spyware scandal in Mexico. You wrote an article about the way in which the Mexican government basically buys like advertising and media as a way to sort of indirectly both fund and control the Mexican establishment. Um, the parallel media ecosystem that's happening within Mexico, like how does the fact that the government is, is spying on both the cartels and journalists influence how people do their jobs? What are the kinds of concerns you hear from your colleagues who are reporting in Spanish uh, language media in Mexico? What are the stakes of reporting when people might be able to see in your phone? Yeah, I mean, we broke some of the early stories on Pegasus in Mexico. And, you know, it came out two years later that my phone was actually on the list of targets. I think probably it's approximate result of writing about it. Um, from my perspective, it's just, you know, you stop communicating digitally. You know, you, you, I had a ghost phone that had a re SIM registered to someone else, and that would be who I communicated with sources. And it would just be like arrange meetups and talk in person about things to go over details. But again, it was, you know, it makes you slightly paranoid, but it's nothing compared to what a colleague in Mexico does. I mean, a colleague in Mexico wouldn't even dare necessarily to write about that. I mean, I would hear from colleagues a lot, like when you guys break a story, that gives us the opportunity to write about it because it's out there. We're not the ones creating the bad image. We're just covering the news. Whereas if we're breaking that, it's a much more scary situation. I think it's changed to some degree. I wrote a story back in, I guess it was 2017, about all the journalists being murdered in Mexico and the various reasons they were being murdered for and, you know, just how deadly it had become to be a journalist. And now under the current president, what you see a lot more is almost like social assassinations. You know, they have these bot armies that just go on the attack against anyone that writes anything negative. You have the president himself who does this like sort of 
three-hour press conference every morning where he sort of talks at the people and fields questions. And most of them are just like ways for him to dismiss or criticize journalists. And then when he picks on someone, others kind of congregate and scream at that person as well. So it becomes a thing where, you know, I was talking to a great journalist in Mexico and she was like, you know, we don't even want to do this anymore. It's not fun. You know, it kills the ambition of the journalists as opposed to actually, you know, physically killing them, which is some, I mean, she's obviously less serious and in some ways much more pernicious because it stifles free speech in a much quieter way. You know, someone complaining about being mistreated or threatened on social media is very different from someone being killed and it's far less traceable. So in my experience, a lot of Mexican democracy is still in its nascency, right? 2000 was the first time the PRI had lost an election in almost 70 years. When you think about it in that way, journalism itself is in its nascency. And there was still up to the last administration, billions or hundreds of millions of dollars going to fund the media and kind of, in some ways, as you said, control it. So there are definitely journalistic outlets that are doing fantastic work, extremely credible investigative work. Carmen Aristegui, you know, Animal Politico, there are, you know, Quinto Elemento Lab, there's several, but they struggle because they're in this uphill battle of funding and interest in a state that is not very friendly to that. So I think for many of them, it's, a, it's like finding targets that they can go after, and B, it's building those investigative skills and muscles and finding the resources to pursue those things. But it's a it's a fraught space. You know, it's not easy for them. You, actually, I don't know if this is true while you've been on Book Leave, but you were at some point the bureau chief for the New York Times in Mexico. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, for about six years. Six years. Tell me about what a bureau chief does and like how you think about coverage as a whole, not just what you're writing, but like what the net output of the New York Times in Mexico. And I think also like sort of extends to like Central America and the Caribbean. I don't know, I don't know what you call that whole, what's the name for that region? I think it might be like LA. No, it's not even LAC. That's Latin America and the Caribbean. I mean, yeah, it's, we're just like a, we're a smaller subset of Latin Central America and islands uh, (laughs) plus islands plus Mexico (laughs) plus islands plus Mexico bureau chief like um that's a lot of terrain to cover yeah it's a big patch I think there were 12 countries I think the fundamental question I always ask when I go into a new place and, and much like when I go into a new gig whether I'm covering currencies or hedge funds or you know geopolitics in Afghanistan or the war it's what does this mean to the world right now? What does the world need to know and how does it fit into that space? So that year when I did all the Pegasus stuff, it was part of a broader project. And I'd been in Mexico a year and I'd had time to sort of sit in on government meetings and follow the news and write about the news. And, you know, my first year was just kind of about learning. And I remember there was a moment when I realized I was like, wow, the whole world looks at Mexico as this place that has been run to ground by cartels and narco violence, but the impunity and kleptocracy of the state might actually be the most twisted, perverse part of this. The state is actually the author of so much of the misery in Mexico and allows for this. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, I knew that the government was particularly sensitive, at least that last government, about how it was portrayed in the world. And I found out they had this office in the presidency called Marca Mexico, which means brand Mexico. And it just kind of dawned on me, like this whole fucking operation is a branding exercise. All these terrible things are happening. You know, 43 students disappear. And, you know, they're talking about foreign direct investment and, you know, how they're going to, you know, how they're, how they're exporting more than, than ever, you know, avocados or whatever it is. And I, and I started to frame something around that, which is like, 
what we see from the outside of what Mexico is and what it actually is. And so that year, I almost wrote about nothing about narco violence. It was all about government malfeasance, whether it was like cover-ups and indifference to the murder of journalists, whether it was about trying to change an entire set of laws that reversed judicial reform, which essentially is presumed guilt before innocence, stripping human rights, or illicit spyware against journalists, human rights activists, and, and lawyers. And that became kind of the... I guess the framework for how I thought about it, like this is a this is a moment to write about Mexico as I see it and juxtapose it with how it's trying to present itself on the world stage. So that was kind of my initiative and effort. And then you have to you have to juggle that with the news demands. You know, immigration is always going to be a hugely important topic with the border resting between Mexico and the United States. So so much coverage is like just going up to the border and trying to chronicle what's happening, what the latest iteration is. And sometimes that stuff isn't, it isn't necessarily consequential, but in the incremental nature of it, it builds to something kind of as you were describing reading Afghan coverage. You know, it's a constellation of 700 stories that gives you a, a general understanding of this is what was happening at the border over these years. Um, I think before I've kind of focused more on long form projects, I was doing like, oh, news is here and there's some news here. And then when I did long form projects, for instance, in 2019, I did a project like a, a seven part series on violence in Latin America and the homicide crisis in Latin America. You know, by necessity, I needed to pick different themes and topics in different countries. So I picked femicides in Guatemala, US, US guns in Jamaica, the unending cycles of violence in Honduras. And that was a way to kind of bring coverage to those places, but also kind of position them in the broader, you know, to reuse the word in the broader constellation of what was happening in the region. When you're doing like a constellation like that, where you're like, each story is like linked, but like a different country, like how do you quickly get up to speed on Honduras after spending all these years in Mexico? You know, like how do you plug into the specifics? Like this book is so specific that I almost don't ever want to read something that's like not specific about it again. You know what I mean? I mean, that was, a, again, thank you. Cause that was kind of what I was trying to do. I wanted to, I just didn't want any more generic statements, Yeah, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I was a serial abuser of the generic statement. I mean, this is how it is here because I say it and I might know it, but to be able to, to give it specificity was one rung of the ladder that I wanted to get up, but then I needed it to all tie around a narrative. I mean, I wanted it to be novelistic. I wanted it to feel like there was a cast of characters who were all interrelated and everything that happens to them could be a stand-in for what happens everywhere. But it didn't happen everywhere. It happened to them and in this way. So there's no, you're never taken out of it. You're never like plucked up and given sort of the 10,000 foot view where you can be told what matters. I think as spirit chief, you kind of have to follow what's going on in all these places anyways. You need to stay on top of things. You're reading news all day, every morning. I mean, I, I sort of started a daily news email that people in the bureau would be on where someone would go through and look at all the major news in Mexico and then all the major news in the region and just put it on there. So we all kind of knew what was happening that day because otherwise you can lose track of it. And so you kind of know the broader strokes of, of things. And you've been, I mean, at least I had been to all these countries before. So I had contacts. I knew who to talk to there to get a bigger understanding. But one of the things that sometimes helps when you're on an investigative project is you have a specific story in mind. So you need to know the whole world, but you really need to know one specific part of that world because you're using that country in service of making a point. So Jamaica, for instance, it was about 
I knew that U.S. guns in the entire region were this incredibly intractable problem that we talk about the, the gun crisis inside the U.S., but we never talk about the suffering that happens with our neighbors because we have an uncontrolled gun policy. And so it was about, okay, I know what's going on in Jamaica. I know the panorama of violence. Now I need to have the sources who can give me this confidential information or allow me to track a single gun because that's the narrative device I want to use. And then once I use that gun and sort of follow it through all of its various homicides, I can then kind of overlay that with context and, and kind of the general strokes, broad strokes around violence in Jamaica and what's causing it and why it exists. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I find in common across a lot of your work is that you are good at finding the hooky thing that will get you into the world of specifics. Like, I would be in remiss if I didn't mention, like, this book is about this woman getting revenge on the, like, cartel members who killed her daughter, you know? Like, it's a pulp-like idea from the 1950s, you know? Like, to make me care enough to where I'm, like, interested in, like, Mexican government policy, we're starting from a point of something that is like, you know, in a one sentence on the back of a book sounds like exciting and like uh, cinematic, you know, and same thing with like tracking a gun. How, like, what have you learned over time about like, what is like a good enough hook that it's going to draw people into a story into places they might not know they're interested in? You know, it's interesting you should say that because it was like, I think it was that thing that made me at first a little reluctant to pursue this book that it felt maybe a little bit too pulpy it was like too good it was like yeah. too hooky an idea yeah it just almost felt like it could be unserious you know it could just be this glorified you know disaster porn where you know you're just like following around someone as they're like smoking bad guys and i knew i knew i wouldn't do it that way and i knew my editor wouldn't let me do it that way but it did give me pause i mean the book proposal i'd had teed up was basically story of this one building in this one community and kind of the people who lived in it and the ways in which that kind of defined contemporary Mexico, a much quieter kind of story where I have to find the narrative within it and, and kind of extract and pull those threads and, and weave it together in a very, very different way. But I think ultimately where I landed was like being, <laughs> this is going to sound so pompous and stupid, but being really readable and really compelling is a good thing. I think sometimes when we talk about literary writing, we think the more complicated and difficult it is, the, the higher brow it is. And I just don't agree with that. I think you can mix things, but the idea of something being accessible to me is highly interesting. And it's like, it's utilitarian, you know, it's not just me kind of speaking to the community of writers. And I also felt like, having spent all those years as bureau chief in Mexico, there were things that I wanted, and I could have only been able to put in a book had I done that job. And so I wanted to find the best vehicle to write about what Mexico is and how it came to be what it is. And, you know, the fact that her story was so compelling and unique and, and complicated more than anything you asked about, like, did I kind of feel a little bummed out when I was like, Oh, she's more complicated than I thought. No, I actually like my, maybe my newspaper instinct was like, Oh, but then I was like, Oh no, this is wonderful. This is like, cause it's true. It's real. It gives her story gravitas to know that she was a real character, complicated and struggling with all kinds of seismic events in her life. All right. This is my last question. Um, so you've built up this huge knowledge in Afghanistan and then left and went to Mexico where the language was different. The culture was different. 
something of a form of starting over. Um, maybe some of the same institutional dysfunction, but like not a ton of it exactly matching. Um, now that you've really immersed yourself in, in the specificity of Mexico, um, where do you go from here? Like, would, do you still have starting over inside yourself? Or are you like, like for me, if by the time I had like gotten as far as you, I'm like, I'm, I can't, I couldn't possibly start over again. <laughs> no, I know. I know. It's like, I'm just tired all over all the time. And you add kids to the mix and you're just like, I can't do this to myself anymore. But I, I am, I'm not, I'm, I, I am in a new gig for the times. It's a global investigative correspondent job focused on, sort of long-term projects, but not region-specific. And my first project is going back to Afghanistan, actually, and trying to tell or understand the history of the war through the eyes of the Taliban. It was more than 20 years, I think, before anyone went back and talked to the Northern Vietnamese, or the Viet Cong for that matter. And after the Vietnam War, and I think something was lost, it's, you know, something about what actually transpired. How did a an insurgency armed with ancient rifles and radios defeat the United States. I think there's things we can learn. And I think after the ways in which the United States sort of washed its hands of this 20 year misadventure, it's merited. And so my year has been dedicated to going back and just trying to find those, those counter perspectives that we could never get, you know, the entire, entire time I was there, you couldn't, you couldn't talk to a Taliban, at least not a real one, not in the field. It was too dangerous. And now and now they're available. Now you can talk to them. They're they're in fact, you know, dying and eager to talk to to foreign journalists. What is a Taliban member? I'm sorry, I said one question. I'm asking a follow up question. Uh, what does a Talib, someone who fought with the Taliban, make of a Pakistani American journalist who's been covering the Mexican cartel wars for the last so many years? I think like. For a lot of them, we're just aliens anyways. We're sort of like these outside, you know, space beings who just dropped into Afghanistan who don't really understand their world and their culture, much like I think many of us would see them. And I think I'm like maybe one degree closer than that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like with just one degree, because I don't, I don't, I tragically don't speak the language. I can understand a bit and convey small things, but that also kind of I mean, I actually would run into problems sometimes under the Karzai and Ghani governments because I was Pakistani-American and the, the spooky conspiratorial minds would get working with government officials and they'd be like, you must be a Pakistani spy. You must work for the ISI. And I'm like, oh my God, if you only knew how untrue that was. But I don't, I don't get as much of that. I think the Taliban suspicions are more general. Like a lot of the stories we're doing require multiple visits to the same place and like spending stretches of time with individuals we've identified as characters and that they're like why are you talking to that guy why are you talking to him what's what's he got to say he's not the most important person in this village you know it's very meritocratic and that creates a bigger problem that the structure of like a narrative or investigative project than than me being a pakistani american i'm just kind of an anomaly to them follow-up question that i promised the end of number two you described the mexican government sort of engaging in this like branding exercise are the taliban thinking about what people think about them in america i like do you feel like um now that they are like on some level the afghan government they are thinking about like branding exercises and how people think about them in history 
I mean, they definitely don't have the fancy budget the Mexican government had to produce like slick advertorials about the virtues of the glorious state of Taliban Afghanistan. But they are in some ways. I mean, what I found super fascinating about them is I sit down with these guys in far-flung regions of Afghanistan, and all of them have the same thing to say. And I don't think it's pre-programmed. I think it's just their genuine curiosity. They're like, why doesn't the United States want to be our friend? They killed us for 20 years. They rained down missiles on us and drone strikes and arrested our family members and you know violated our women. And now the war is over and we're ready to like shake hands and move on and the U.S. won't do it. And, and the best answer I have for them is like, I mean, the U.S., we're not good losers, right? Like you're not going to lose a 20-year war, be humiliated in the way, like basically you go to war to rid yourself of the very insurgency that comes back at the end of the war. I mean, it couldn't be a more twisted kind of trail to get back to the very beginning. But it's, it's interesting because they don't really understand it they have a switch that they can just flip where they're like, okay, that was the fighting time, now's the talking time. And they really want to engage. I mean, they clearly don't care enough about branding because they continue with these sort of wrongheaded policies about women's education and all these other things. But I think they look at them, like that's just something I don't think they get. You know, maybe a few of the people get it and, and some of the lower commanders and even the people who are under the Supreme Commander understand it and are frustrated by the Taliban policy. But they look at things like the amnesty, for instance. They gave amnesty to anyone who worked for the government and anyone who is a police officer or a soldier. And they've largely stuck to it. I mean, there have been some extrajudicial killings. But in the history of war, when an armed group takes over a country, there's usually a lot of bloodshed. And there was not a lot of bloodshed. They kind of, it was almost like a talked end to that conflict. You know, they stopped growing poppy. You can't find a poppy stalk anywhere in that country. I've driven thousands of kilometers through the heart of poppy country, and I haven't seen any of it. I mean, that's something the U.S. spent $9 billion trying to do and failed miserably. In fact, during that same period, Afghanistan became the number one poppy producer in the world. That was another thing where they're like, okay, we're going to lose money. This is a huge economy that we can't replace, but we're going to do this as a measure of good faith. That's a branding exercise for them. I think they're missing the like PR arm. <laughs> They can like yep. get it out into the world and like put a bright face on it. But I think from their perspective, that was kind of the, that was their effort to show the world they turned a leaf. But it's hard to, it's hard to see any of that when, you know, you hear about girls not being able to go to school and the deep dissatisfaction and injustice inherent to that. They're not doing anything about creating a better branding campaign around that. I, when I was in Vietnam as a tourist, I went, I'm going to mangle the name, but it was like a, the Museum of American Aggression or something yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. And in Hanoi, right? In Hanoi, exactly. And the biggest takeaway I had from it was that kind of like the sea change happens when like the generation who had the firsthand experience dies out. And now the relationship is between like the children of people who are there and I don't know, like some, there's something about the brain that you can't like rebrand within your own generation. A generation has to die out and there has to be a generation that sort of starts where the last one left off. I, I guess we're kind of probably getting to that point with the Taliban. I mean, the people who are fighters early on are probably, you know, starting to become grandparents right now, right? Yeah. And I think the other thing about these guys is they they always wanted to govern. They were a government. They got toppled and then they came back with this idea of governance. And throughout the duration, at least the latter part of the war, they had set up shadow governors, you know, people to administrate and do things like, 
you go to certain places and you realize like, wow, this was like a Taliban village. Like this is how they ran it and this is how it worked and this is how justice worked. And that was such a huge component of this. So I think in some ways they also have a different set of pressures, right? They don't have another patron. You know, I think the Vietnamese could at least hold out for a little while, not allying themselves or making nice with the United States, whereas the Taliban realizes their kind of their future lies in a relationship with the United States. And it's more the U.S. shedding that baggage of trauma. I think the Taliban have gotten quite used to losing people. You can't meet anyone there who didn't lose brothers, fathers, cousins. I mean, just a scores of people. Whereas in the United States, it was such a discreet group of people who did the fighting and the dying, you know, and their stories were publicized, but a lot of times people never knew anybody who fought in Afghanistan or went over there. And I think it just didn't have the impact on the national psyche that it did in Afghanistan. And in some ways, and maybe I'm just making this all up, but I feel like that has quickened the desire for a stable relationship within the Taliban, whereas in the United States, it's kind of lingered as this festering humiliation and upset, and it's also become political so it's become a political tool for Republicans to bash Democrats and vice versa. Whereas, you know, in the Emirate of Afghanistan, there is but one government. They can kind of do what they want. <laughs> I look forward to uh, reading your reporting on that. And thank you so much for this interview. Thanks for having me. That was the long form podcast. Uh, thanks very much to our editor, Susan Peterson. Thanks to Megan Valley for doing the show notes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to the folks at Vox Media who help us make this show. Uh, pick up the book. I really, really, really recommend this book. Fear is just a word. A missing daughter, a violent cartel, and a mother's quest for vengeance. We'll be back with a new show next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.